Film Ireland interview with the great Wayne Byrne, who's become something of a regular in the last, I don't know, is it five or six years, Wayne? <laughs> five years. Every At year least. it seems to be an annual thing now at this stage. Well, it's a book a year. If you're going to write a book a year and they're good books, we're going to keep coming back to you and talking to you. So uh, Wayne, uh, I first met Wayne when he did a beautiful volume on Tom the Chiller. And then he followed that up with two books almost back to back. One on a great cinematographer called Nick McLean and another on Burt Reynolds. And his last book only published how long ago, Wayne? Yeah, Welcome Down Street just came out about five months ago. So yeah, we're still in, I'm still promoting that in certain parts of the world. So it's strange to be promoting that, promoting Walter Hill and then finishing up a new one as well. So which we'll get to, but we'll, 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 the one we're primarily here to talk about, you're going to, it's getting launched in November, I believe. Yeah, it could be out anytime within the next two or three weeks. Some people tell me early October, other people tell me early November. Who knows? Fantastic. And the book, finally, we get into the title of it. It's Walter Hill, The Cinema of a Hollywood Maverick. That's it. You know, you remind me of uh, spaghetti western movies. Why have a title when you can have a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you go down the, the route and decide that we needed a Walter Hill book? Because I wanted one. <laughs> That's usually the case. That's usually how these projects start because they're the books that I wanted to put on my shelf. There was no books on Walter that I could buy, so I really wanted to have one. And I just felt, as a like I have with my other subjects, that he should be written about in some kind of, you know, literary tome. You know, in some deep critical consideration it's amazing that there. that he wasn't i think there was one book existed in france and that was it that's right it was a french or italian book i can't remember and it was printed quite a long time ago but um yeah i just felt the time was right and like i say i'm going through all my kind of my heroes here with all these books and walter is certainly one of them and you know i was lucky enough that i knew some people in his realm you know, I mean, who, people who I've met on other books and people who are friends and acquaintances of mine. So when I kind of started coming up with the idea of doing a Walter Hill book, I was able to reach out to them and kind of at least get to see if, if they would be interested in talking to me for a book if I was to do this. And of course, going into this, I never thought that I would get to speak to Walter Hill because I'm aware that he's not somebody who likes being interviewed, commentating on his movies, even looking back at his movies. As he said to me, once they're finished and they, they premiere, that's it, they're gone. He never looks at them again. You know, he says that when they, you know, when channel surfing at night, his wife might stop on one of his movies and he'll just say, turn the damn thing off. You know, so that's, he's not a guy to really want to spend too much time looking back on his career. So I just, I, I just didn't think I'd get him. So I, I kind of pursued the idea of the book thinking, oh, well, I'll write about the movies and I might get to talk to some of these people I know who he's worked with and worked in these movies. But, you know, some people said, have you talked to Walter? And then other people said, well, I'll talk to you if you talk to Walter. So then I was like, oh, crap, maybe I do have to actually try and get Walter if I want to talk to these other people. Because it was like Burt Reynolds in that if people are going to talk to you, they want to know that this is legit. They don't, they, they don't want it to be kind of, you know, a half-assed, in, in Burt Reynolds' case, kind of more of a tabloid kind of piece or a personal piece. But I was lucky. Some of these guys knew my work. They knew how I treat my subjects. They knew that I'm serious when it comes to, you know, writing about these these artists and their, their work. So I was able to get some good references there. People who went back to Walter and said, Wayne's trying to talk to you. You should do it. He's a good guy. He knows what he's talking about. So it eventually got to the point where Walter said, 
you've been talking to all my friends, so maybe I think I should talk to you, you know. So that was great. You know, I talked to Walter twice, so we covered all of his movies over two nights. And it was great to get him, you know, and I found out that he was, as I say, not one for dwelling too deep on his his work. What Where we really kind of sparked was talking about other things, talking about directors we both loved, talking about old Hollywood, things like that. I think that kind of maybe opened him up a bit more to talking about then his his other work, because because we talked so deeply about, say, Raoul Walsh and old Hollywood, we were able to talk about the getaway and Hickey and Boggs and other things that were kind of, you know, came about because of his love of those movies. So it just kind of, it was very natural, you know, as I try to do with all of these conversations. Or sorry, he, has, he has a similar muscle to some of his heroes like Raoul Walsh and John Ford is that he does not like to be perceived as an intellectual, but he probably very much is. I know well, Larry Gross because uh, the interview with him, he, he mentions this, that he's a very erudite and intelligent man, but he doesn't like too much self-analysis or that kind of conversation. Rather, the work speaks for itself. Absolutely. He is a formidable intellect. And that's one of the things that, you know, you realize when you're talking to him, you, you don't want to seem foolish and you want to seem up to the task, you know. And I think having that foundation in a knowledge in film history was was really got us off to a good start because we connected on those shared loves of certain directors and certain films going back to early Hollywood. And it was just a great foundation and it really opened opened him up. And he was very, he was generous. You know, he said if, if we wanted further conversations, he was open to it. Now I knew he was in the middle of making a new movie. So again, this was another reason why I taught starting this book that I'm not going to get Walter. He's got to, he's making a movie. Why would he, why would he stop? Or why would he have time to talk to me in the middle of making a movie? But he did. We chatted and it was great. So getting Walter on board was really kind of made it feel as legitimate as you can get. You know, as I say, it's a, it's a boon to have him because he doesn't do these things very often. He, he really does represent the last of a breed almost. He's the link between new Hollywood of the 70s and Hollywood going right back to the 40s, 50s and 30s even in terms of that, that kind of attitude and, and the kind of storytelling. But also the fact that he worked his way to directing through writing. And that first film is probably one of the greatest debut films ever made, Hard Times. Yeah, and it feels like it could have been made in the 40s by John Ford or something like that. You know what I mean? It's such a self-assured debut right out of the gate, you know. And then he goes and makes The Driver, which is completely different. You know, it's very probably more new wave and European influenced, whereas Hard Times is very much like, you know, one of the auteurs of the, the old Hollywood system. And that's that's one of the things I love about Walter. He has that kind of, what I would say, a kind of a, a working class resolve about him in that he treat even though he is very much an artist, very much an auteur, he has a certain working class approach to filmmaking, which I very much admire. And it's a, probably, it's a it's the way I approach writing books as well, which is you get in there, you go to work, you finish it, you move on, you, you work, get on to the next one. You know, One of his most famous movies, I mean, it certainly has a huge legacy and it was a huge cult immediately it came out, was The Warriors. It kind of marks him for a lot of people, yet it, uh, it, it's not it's, one to paint the the character of his work, but it is his most famous movie probably for a lot of people. It is, yeah. And it's a, it's a curious one that that has become such a huge... Not, I, wouldn't, it's, I think it's beyond a cult movie at this stage. You know, it, it has become, I guess, a classic of American cinema. 
not one of my favorite Walter Hill movies, and I certainly don't think it's representative of his talents yeah. at their best. You know, there's certainly many more movies I would I would recommend to somebody before The Warriors, but The Warriors is very unique and so distinctive in its tone, in its style. <sighs> You know, it, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it's one of those films that has just taken on a life it's, of its own. It's, it's so visceral, and it just it runs along that tightrope between uh, exploitation and something with a, with a, a bit of real social subtext and, and a heart. Yeah, well, it's it's born of a sociological essay, which you saw Lyric's original book. So it's, yeah. it comes from social social origins. And of course, Walter brings the kind of the Greek mythological elements to it, as he does to many of his films. So it, you know, it's rooted in these very, very serious, very dense thematic subtexts. So you know, the, the surface element of the Warriors sometimes I think maybe does that subtext get lost, especially in the kind of the more recent version of it that came out in two thousand and five, which put back in the kind of comic book panels that I know Walter originally envisioned in his original version. But I always preferred the, the original theatrical version because it felt grittier. There was something about, without the, the comic book panels, it makes it more of a kind of a grimy New York, 70s New York movie. I don't know, something about the comic book panels takes me out of that a little bit, you know, and I can admire that Walter got a chance to at least present a vision of what he originally envisioned. But wasn't able to at the time because of you know, the executive's power. It does push hard away from Saul Yurik's original idea, which was a much more grim reality. The elements yeah. of fantasy are stronger, but they probably even seemed at times because it came with such uh, controversy between the gang. The first, it was the first film to have an effect in cinemas like that, and that the media pushed that really hard, even though it wasn't of the high escalation that they they marked it as being. So it comes tainted with that. So in, it, as you say, time and distance, it's, yeah. it feels like a very different film and a very humorous film. And it's got a lot more going on. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, for me, one of my favorite things about The Warriors is the cast, because there's no real. Well, there's people in it who became, you know, more recognizable over the years. But at the time, these were not name actors. You know what I mean? And it's very much an ensemble piece with no particular lead. I know the de facto lead is Swan, you know, Michael Beck's character, just because he's kind of the the handsome hero in the end. But there's no, it's, it's, you know, there's nobody you can pick out at any stage in the movie, one of these characters can get knocked off because nobody is really the hero. Nobody's the star. So there's that element of surprise in the film. And that's what I think is one of the great things about don't it. Forget it's just that, that. that evolved as well as much out of the fact that uh, one of the people that was supposedly going to be the lead wasn't working out so well. And Hill has done that many times now. He really evolves the whole thing all the way through the process. In exactly, ways yeah. that other, you know, scripts change, obviously, in, in Hollywood. But with him, he does play this this thing of finding the strengths along the way. I mean, 48 Hours is another great example of him working with Eddie Murphy on an instinct and then realize what he had at a certain point. Well, it's interesting that, you know, at several points throughout the making of 48 hours, Eddie Murphy was on the brink of being fired, you know, because the Paramount execs had no faith in him whatsoever. You know, the guys could see that the footage wasn't really working, you know, that <clears throat> as soon as, you know, he had to deal with off camera plot exposition, whatever it was, that's where he faltered. He, he didn't have the skills to kind of, you know, imagine what he needed to imagine that wasn't there on the screen so but will or walter hill you know really kind of i think was more to do with his own self-belief as a director that 
it's his job to get the performance out of him. You know, he's responsible here. He's hired the actor. It's up to him to get the performance out. And it would have wouldn't it wouldn't have spoke or looked very well to Walter if you know if if he had let the executives have their way and let Eddie be fired because. Like I say, that's Walter's job. He was there to get a performance out of him. And ultimately, he did. They honed in on certain elements of Murphy's humor and character that they really, really dived into and parlayed for the rest of the film. And he became a star. So they really tapped into something great there. It, another thing that comes across in, in the book is that loyalty and uh, kind of sense of heart that uh, Hill has as a filmmaker. He really created an amazing group of people. And he's very much a man of honor. I mean, Larry Gross talks about working with him on on Streets of Fire, and for, and and then becoming the, a regular in other ways over the years. Alan Graff, another interesting man who does your your uh, forward, went from stuntman to second unit director. I think he did second unit on Dead for a Dollar, the new film as well. He did. I think he was so stunt coordinator. Amazing that as well. bunch of people you've got talk that you, you interviewed as well as Walter and. They all sing his praises. Yeah, he's one of those guys, as I say, even when I, like, when, when I was approaching these people for interviews, most of the people said, is Walter on board with this? If Walter's on board, I'll do it. There's that sense of, if Walter gives me the go-ahead, I'm in. You know, that kind of way. And yeah, he, he kind of, I guess, not commands that, but there's just something about his, I guess, his manner, his way of directing, his innate sense of loyalty to people that they want to be loyal to him and respectful and you know do him right interesting because like he worked at one of the great reprobates of uh of directing uh sam peckinpah who wrote <laughs> the getaway for him and uh he would admire his work but he'd be very different in persona and his way of working a set oh yeah absolutely yeah i mean one of apparently one of the things you know the worst thing that walter could say about somebody is to call them a bully you know, he has no time for this thing of suffering for your art and being a fucking asshole for the sake of getting a performance or getting work out of somebody. You know, and I think that it speaks for itself when you see all these people going back to work for him time and again. So he's he's obviously a, he's a, he's a delight to work with. And for me, he was a delight to speak to. So if, if what he was like in person talking to him is like what he is as a filmmaker, he was a gem. What was the biggest revelation for you as you started exploring the work more? Did you? The films that I ended up loving more than I expected. So I ended up, you know, going into this, I had my, my old favorites. You know what I mean? You have your, your 48 hours, you know, your, t your Southern comforts, things like that, which were always my favorites. But then over time, as I watched the movies again and again, certain films which I thought were kind of mid-level or down the end, all of a sudden I, I, I saw something different in them. And all of a sudden now I think I find myself going back to the likes of Last Man Standing, another 48 hours. You know, Extreme Prejudice was always one of my favourites. But again, that's just been elevated in my book because I just, I've, I've seen, it's one of the great things about doing these kinds of books is you're, you're so intensely focused on everything about them from the production, the writing, the directing, the action, the acting, everything. You're, you're so focused and you realize, God, there's so much more here than I ever realized. And Last Man Standing in particular, I think, has probably come out for me as one of, if not Walter's masterpiece, certainly the masterpiece of the second half of his career. I think it's just, it's everybody working on that film is working at the height of their artistry, the peak of their powers, 
whether it's Lloyd O'Hearn's cinematography, Freeman Davis's editing, certainly Roy Cooter's score, I think is the most beautiful music he's ever written in his career, not just on Walter's soundtracks, but in his whole career that for me is probably my favorite soundtrack. And I think what, it's just a beautiful film. I mean, it's a down and dirty, gritty film noir, Western gangster movie, with Bruce Willis being gruff and doing, you know, his best Robert Mitchum, whatever. But it's, it's, there's such melancholy to that film that I think I've never seen written about anywhere in, in criticism on it, on it. But when I spoke to Walter about this, he was very happy to hear that, A, that I, I love the film as much as I do, and B, that I mentioned that there was great pathos and melancholy in that film, because that's what he intended and was never really picked up on. And several people who worked on that movie have remarked on this to me, that I was able to pick up on things in that film that nobody has. And that made me very happy as a, as a writer, as a film historian, and just as an appreciator of these films, because this is, this is why I do what I do, is to kind of shine a light on these films, which I just want more approbation for you know what i mean and i get that was one of them another 48 hours was another it's for me i i, I personally i think i'm in the minority here but i think another 48 hours is better than 48 hours i don't know how many people are going to agree with me on that but again walter was happy to hear that you know someone was actually giving it some some credit for being a good movie and again talking to alan alan is so proud of that movie because he did some amazing stunts on that some really groundbreaking work and i think that was really the the start of there's a phase in Walter's career which had a certain style to their to the action scenes and the stunts. It's a very exaggerated action. I, I can't describe. I can't put it into words. You just know it when you see it, and it starts in another forty eight hours really. And I, again, that's Alan Graff. You know the way he coordinates and set up uh, stunts. So you know another forty eight hours. Last man standing. I've gone back to the long riders many more times than I have in the past. Geronimo, I think, is one of his greatest. It's just, again, such a beautiful film. Walter's certainly not a, um, a sentimental filmmaker, but I think his stories, like I say with Last Man Standing, have inherent pathos just in their construction and in the stories he's trying to tell. He's not a sentimental filmmaker, but his stories have pathos, you know. So I think that that sometimes doesn't get spoken about enough about Walter Hill. Because we hear a lot about, when people talk about Walter Hill, we hear about masculinity and we hear about men's men. And yes, those things are all in there. We see they're dirty words at the moment. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Uh, what, what's, uh, it's going to, my name is going to in my head and I don't know why, his, his Sierra Madre. Oh, Trespass. Well, that was actually one of my earliest favorites of Walters. And it's been there, like with, as I say, with Southern Comfort and 48 Hours. It's just been there since kind of childhood almost. But yeah, as you mentioned it, it was, it's probably the biggest chapter in the book, actually, in terms of just length, because I had so much I wanted to say about it and write about. And I interviewed a lot of people from it as well. So I really dug in deep on that chapter. And it is, again, it's an undersung uh, masterpiece in there in the Walter Hill canon. It had an unfortunate release you know, similar to the Warriors in that there was some social things going on at the time, which it, it was just bad timing. You know, the Rodney King riots, the LA riots were happening right at that time. And, you know, you had headlines talking about looters and the original title of the movie was The Looters. So Universal were very tentative about releasing it. And even when they changed the title, they changed the ending to be less contentious, racially speaking. They still just dumped it. They dumped it out on Christmas Day in 1992, which was an awful, awful time to release such a film. And I think it ended up coming straight to video over here, which was probably 
Walter's first straight-to-video movie over here, which is a crying shame because that movie really upped the ante in terms of the aesthetics. That was Walter's first movie with Lloyd Hearn as a cinematographer. And it's such a visceral film. They brought in elements of, they juxtaposed the film stocks with VHS camera, handheld stuff. It's an amazingly put-together piece of work. And they did the same with Wild Bill, a couple of years later where they, you know, they kind of juxtaposed film stocks and VHS and all that kind of thing. It's just a, such an unusual style for a mainstream movie at that time. And it's, it's such a shame that it's just... And Trespass was an early Gail and Zemeckis script as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, Zemeckis, Gail wrote that back in the late 70s, I think it was. And it was what kind of... Gale, was... What did Gail say about it as a Christmas movie? <laughs> oh, he was... <laughs> I think he's still apoplectic about that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interesting because it did, it had its origins as, you know, it was coming off you know, Deliverance and Fort Apache the Bronx. So, you know, this whole idea of instead of having the, the city boys going out to the country, you have the country boys going into the city, you know, and then you bring in the Fort Apache the Bronx element, which is the social deprivation and, you know, gangs and, cops and all this kind of thing so yeah that's uh it's it's such an interesting movie and Again, like a needs... lot of great films like that i think it's it's your second or third viewing that you go oh wow yeah absolutely and i think it's just it's just a fun action movie and that's the thing about walter hill as well you know for all the for all the teams you might want to talk about all the kind of great production work that goes on into them Really, at the end of the day, they're entertaining movies. And that, that's the thing. Walter Hill is a, is a mainstream director. He's not somebody working on the fringes here. You know, so he is, um, he is one of the great auteurs working in the Hollywood mainstream. And he has maintained an auteur voice. You know, and that, that was one of the things in the book that I kind of wrestled with. Was, you, know, you have this idea of the workman filmmaker of the old school. But it's, you can't deny the fact that he is a distinctive auteur. So, you know, I opened the book discussing, you know, you know the auteur theory and um, what, what that means in relation to Walter. And the final pages of the book, you know, really kind of wrap it around and say, you know, he is an auteur, but it takes all these people to bring that auteur vision to the screen, all these regular collaborators. And Walter is the first man to, you know, deflect praise and put it on to his collaborators. So it's it, it's a book which really is a celebration of collaboration. Were you able to uh, get him into into any intellectual chatter and themes of about his work, or did he avoid that kind of self analysis? I did that because I I didn't think that that's the kind of avenue he wanted to go down, and you know I kind of left the ball in the, in his court for that one. You know we didn't go too deep into thematic analysis we kept it generally i mean there were other people who went there because you know they're screenwriters or even some of the producers who come from that kind of maybe you know screenwriting background where teams are key so the likes of larry gross and ken friedman you know they're all about the teams and the ideas behind the movie and they can fill in some of the things that i would have maybe liked to ask walter about but i didn't think you know that's where he would have went with it. Johnny Handsome. That's another movie that has kind of gone up in in my book just from repeat viewings. And I think it's, again, another very, very stylish piece of work. You know, and it's, Mickey Rourke's best. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's just a great atmospheric piece of contemporary film noir, the likes of which we didn't see much of in the 1980s and haven't seen much of since. 
But um, that's the great thing about Walter. He can just go from all these different styles and different genres and there's still in, uh, just an indelible piece of Walter Hill footprint in there. I suppose his most unusual film really is Brewster's Millions. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about that briefly because it's... It, yeah, not for bad reasons. It sticks out like a sore thumb as a movie. It's a it's a remake of a a famous Hollywood film, which is actually an adaptation of a book about a man who inherits money if he can spend x amount of money within a short space of time, he gets to inherit a billion or whatever. And it's a yeah, Richard Pryor right. movie. Um, and he did say he did it for the money. But th- what else do you have to say about making that film? Well, well, when I look at that film, again, I brought this up to Walter. We talked about it in the book is to me that's his Frank Capra movie and it makes sense to when I look at it and I say okay this is Walter doing Frank Capra and when I asked him about it and I, I spoke to um, Larry Gordon about it the producer and yeah they said that's exactly and Herschel Weingrove the screenwriter they all said yes we were doing our Capra-esque movie we were doing our you know Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Meet John Doe, The Great McGinty those kind of movies Preston Sturges, uh, Frank Capra those kind of guys and so that made sense for me. Once I was once I, I I was able to get that across to them that this is what I see in the movies, and they said yes, that's that's what we were doing. That opened up for me the chance to you know to to, to write about that. So to me, it was never just a throwaway eighties comedy with Richard Pryor and John Candy. It was always Walter Hill once again going back to these old Hollywood forms, but doing it in a you know an eighties manner, and it makes sense. You know, to me. Mostly, I, I I get elements of meet John Donut. You know, you get the kind of the the sporting hero who is also you know working class, but he becomes an accidental man of the people kind of thing. You know, and that's a very Capra esque mm. kind of concept. But um, I think it's brilliant. You know, and there's some very stylish touches in there which are but very well He's never considered a, a comedy director, but there's a huge amount of humor through all his work. No matter how dark yeah. it gets, there's always humor there. Well, that was a run. In, that was one of a run of three films that he did in the eighties. That he said, you know, he was, he for the first decade of his career, he did some pretty tough movies, tough action movies and thrillers. So, you know, he said he'd try and hey, let's tap into this youth market and see what we can do. And, you know, he did Streets of Fire, he did Crossroads, and Brewster's Millions. And again, each of them is very, very different, but they are they all are kind of you know, youth oriented mm. to some degree, I guess. Brewster's Millions is probably the most obvious one, as in, you know, you can, I remember watching that when I was about six years old, seven years old, and just enjoying it as a Richard Pryor and John Candy comedy. You can work, you can, you know, enjoy it on that level. Yeah. But also unusual is Supernova. It doesn't even have his name on it. That's right. And, you know, it was one of those things where I, I brought it up to Walter, I mentioned it, and he said, You well, were brave. <laughs> I know. I had to, you know, I said, why not? If I'm going to write a comprehensive book on a man's career... It's a, you know he he did work on it, but I, he, as he said, it's not his movie anymore. It's his name isn't even on it, so I didn't push it. But I did talk about it with other people, and I talked. I spoke to the original writer William Malone, and I spoke to Jack Shoulder, who came in and took over the film after Walter before Coppola eventually came and took it over. I spoke to Lloyd Hearn, his DP, and I can't remember who else put they're in there. But yeah, I mean. This, this is where I had to put my film historian cap on, you know, and say, well, listen, it's part of the man's career. He worked on it. And it's an interesting story to tell in terms of what happened. And you have you have a film here, which is the result of three very distinctive filmmakers, Walter Hill, Jack Shoulder and Francis Ford Coppola. They've all had a hand in what is the final product. It should also be noted. Sorry to interrupt. 
that Walter Hill is one of the almost unspoken heroes of the Alien franchise. And yep. it's his draft that most people would talk about within circles of being the one that really sold that movie. Despite Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett being the originators and getting a lot yep. of the credit, it was himself and Guyler, wasn't it, who yep. put that well, script out that got the film made. And yeah, It was their Brandywine Productions was their company. Yeah. And, and he he was around, I think, wasn't he involved in the franchise for at least the first three to four movies? I think the first three movies. He was. No, I, I didn't really go and into it. you'll still see his name there due to whatever legal reasons. Oh, it's it's on all the yeah. movies right up until the most recent one. Well, I find it really interesting that, again, he put such a... I mean, that script is there to be seen online. It's worth any budding script writers out there. It's interesting that he went to try to direct a sci-fi which was inspired in a way by the success of of the alien franchise in the first place yeah it was one of those films that was in development hell for for quite a few years you know with William, William Malone at one stage was originally supposed to direct it wasn't the pitch you know, dead William's calm a, in space that's exactly it you know De William Malone had seen dead calm and he thought this is a you know Hitchcockian concept how great would it be to put it in space you know a few people trapped with a, a villain a demon in this case but um you know it just it passed through various producers, various directors, various studios, landed with MGM, United Artists. And, you know, Walter, Jack Shoulder was actually originally hired to direct, but then Walter was brought in by Frank Mancuso. I guess, you know, Walter's bona fides are there from Alien. So, I mean, if you're going to get somebody in to make a, a horror movie in space, it makes sense to bring in one of the masters. Now, in saying that, you mentioned Alien a minute ago, and that's one of the movies we didn't go, I didn't go into in depth talking to him about it, because, you know, what, I'm just... I'm sick of reading about Alien, so I didn't, I, you know, I had the privilege of not wanting to go there or needing to go there, so I didn't go there. So, you know, it, it, we reference it in several chapters, um, but it's not something I felt, listen, if you want if you want to read up about Alien, as you say, it's all online, there's plenty of documentaries. Well, I'm only talking about it really from the point of view, the fact that it, uh, it reminded me to talk to you about Walter Hill as a scriptwriter. He has that essence of putting a movie in your head that a, a lot of scripts would not be concerned with because they're seen as mechanical pieces of work to get the job done and everybody has to look at it to find out what they're doing. But he is a beautiful writer. You feel like you've read something and you've, you've seen the film. And I know that script is, is talked about with that regard. But his Hard Time script, again, is another script out there well worth reading if you have any notions of being a script writer, showing what you can do. Absolutely. And I think as well, one of the ones that came up quite often speaking to other filmmakers and other people he's worked with is the driver screenplay everybody has kind of noted that as really kind of the definitive walter hill script you know in the fact that it's it's the absolute bare bones yeah. you know but again numerous. another influence is again we talked about jean pierre melville is that it's definitely influence on, on his work there well it's yeah. interesting you know I, I spoke to walter about this you know if for us film films or cineasts, whatever you want to call it, film aficionados, we, we can kind of trace all these elements back. When we look at the driver, we see Melville, we see whoever else from the French New Wave in there. You know, you say it to Walter and Walter will say, yes, you know, Melville was a great director and Samurai was a great film, but he said something really interesting, which I love. He said, we're all the sum of our influences. We're all, history is influence, you know, and he says, you know, we're all influenced by the masters. I mean, you can't say you're, you're influenced by John John Ford if you're not influenced by D.W. Griffith and if you're not influenced by D.W. Griffith and all that kind of thing, you know, it, it traces back to the earliest development of cinema and before that, storytellers. So I love that he's, he's able to kind of 
trace everything back really to D.W. Griffith. Yeah, we're talking Shakespeare, Greek mythology, and uh, people who cared what went on in the amphitheater yeah, <laughs> all those thousands yeah. of years ago. I mean, it's these are things that I try and you know speak about whenever I do uh, teach teach film classes in college or schools. That you know, it really starts in the early days of cinema. Whatever it is that you like these days, whatever Marvel movies you're enjoying or whatever the hell it is, it really starts with D.W. Griffith and the early filmmakers. You know, so it's it's important to acknowledge that influence, whether it's obvious or on the surface or not. You know, yeah. and that that's what Walter was saying is it all goes back. Yeah, and I mean we we pick up we pick up things as we go along, sometimes unconsciously. Uh, I you know I don't know how consciously Walter you know put Melville those influences into the driver, or if he was just making it and it was unconscious, but. He has acknowledged Melville and the Samurai as great works. Well, back to say the, his earlier writing, uh, one of his first scripts, original script was Hickey and Box. And it has that sparseness of movement and characters doing things that exists all the way through a lot of his work. Absolutely, yeah. And you know what? I think Hickey and Box is a vastly underrated film, but a very influential one, I would say, as well. If you look at that and look at Lethal Weapon, you will see so many similarities. And I'm talking... I'd say Shane scenes. Black remembers his, his early oh. 70s movies big time. And let's face it, that's one of his big influences. Absolutely, it has to be. And I've never seen him reference it. But then again, I haven't really done a whole lot of reading on Shane Black. But there are scenes in that. And there's just kind of tropes that, you know, Lethal Weapon kind of established. I know 48 Hours was really the film that established that kind of buddy comedy, you know, the action Buddy Cop Duo thing, but Lethal Weapon, I would Another say... Another thing he doesn't get that much credit for, really. No one ever talks about it in those terms, but it was the first yeah, of a certain yeah. kind he, of... He was influential on that level, and, you know, as I say, people reference 48 Hours as being the originator, but if you go back to Hickey and Boggs, that's really the template, I would say, anyway. And that came out... What was the... Freebie and the Bean came out after that? Freebie so, and the Bean was around that, yeah. So, um... Yeah, I, you know, Hickey and Boggs aren't cops. They're private investigators. But I think the whole, the chemistry and the whole idea of these kind of cynical anti-heroes, you know, kind of navigating the LA underworld and coming across all sorts of CDs. Easily forgotten film. And unfortunately, because Bill Cosby's in it, it'll be even more forgotten now. <laughs> it ain't coming out anytime too soon. A fun movie. And it's, um, it's a very, very well-made, beautifully photographed film. And Robert Culp, Deserves some serious credit there as the director as well. He also wrote, uh, he, he did some adaptations, and we, we just to bring it kind of brings us a bit of a circle to the getaway was was the film that really pushed him into directing after that because Lawrence Gordon took notice. Absolutely, yeah, the getaway was such a massive success. You know, I think after that he was the he kind of he was the screenwriter screenwriter that the likes of Larry couldn't afford. <laughs> you know what I mean? So all of a sudden his fee was, uh, you know getaway levels of success price so but larry gordon came up with a, a good strategy of getting walter which was to say listen i can't afford you but i'll let you direct and write you know and walter wanted to be a director so of course i'll do that you know so and hard times be... was based on an idea by gordon as well wasn't it it was a script that had come to him yeah from from another writer and you know there was elements of of Walter's grandfather in there. So he really connected to the material. As he, Walter said that he, he feels that that film should nearly carry a, a screenwriting or story credit to his grandfather because there's a lot of elements of Cheney in there, of his grandfather in Cheney and 
all those all those stories of you know these kind of roughneck workers back in you know depression era america yeah kind of just scrambling to survive and doing what they can and just hustling you know bare knuckle boxing and whatever they can just to do on the side to get a bit of extra cash so it's a yeah it's a film that really meant a lot to water walter i think and he he connected to it on that kind of emotional level so that was that was some nice stuff to actually get in there in the book was to talk about that talk about his his grandfather's history you know kind of gave you an insight into walter walter's family life that i'd never really read before in any kind of interviews he's not again he's not someone who really talks about his personal life you've interviewed a lot of people for this book uh tell me some of the favorite voices in the book well i have to give you a big shout out to alan graff who did do my forward and he's present throughout much of the book all of and it, really. i have interviewed alan and there's going to be an interview following this one up so uh please look out for that uh it's yeah. a, a great man to talk to it was a true american football that. hero stuntman unit director actor he's in more yeah. things than people realize but tell me more about alan yeah well this is the thing you know i was thrilled to talk to alan apart from walter hill all you know he's one of those people one of those faces that i've seen on my television screen since the age of four you know, from seeing him in RoboCop and all those other, you know, TJ Hooker, the A-Team, all those things. He was always there. He's one of those faces. So speaking to Alan, to me, was a great thrill. But it was a, it was special for this book because him and Walter have one of those relationships, which is, you know, they're almost like brothers. It is a professional relationship. And it's interesting how it started because, you know, it started as Walter being an admirer of Alan Graff's, you know, because Alan Graff was this football hero and Walter being such a big fan of American football, he knew Alan Graff. But then it turned into a professional relationship. You know, Alan ended up performing, acting in in Walter's movies. He ended up eventually becoming a stunt coordinator, second unit director, you know, and they've been pretty much inseparable for much of Walter's career. And so he's one of those voices that was crucial in helping me understand Walter the artist and Walter the man. I think on every book, it's nice to get somebody like that who doesn't just speak of what it's like to work with him, but to give you a little insight into those, the, the personal touches. And what I've gotten from Alan is kind of Walter, the the prankster, the joker, the the good humored man that we, you know, we don't often see in this kind of gruff, serious media image of him. But I'm also, who else did I get? You know, some of my favorite people like Mike O'Shea, um, Bobby LeBong, um, Lloyd Ahern, Nicholas Guest, you know, so many people. I'm going to I'm going to forget names now. So I'm going to do somebody an injustice by forgetting or listing people. But um, yeah, those, I, I spoke to some really incredible people. Everybody was was fantastic. You know what I mean? Everybody was very willing and open to talk. And they gave me they helped me write the book that I wanted to write. And I can't say any anything more highly than that. So have you trepidation about passing this tome along to Walter Hill to get his approval? <laughs> Too late now. <laughs> well, you, well you you know, you're going to give him a copy and he's going to look at it and he's going to go, you're going to get him to sign it. Well, this... <laughs> if he signs it, I, I, you, you know, know he approves. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. The book is done. It's out there. Well, it will be out there. I just, you know, obviously I hope he, he likes it. Um, everybody I've spoken to is very supportive, you know, of the book and they seem to have enjoyed, you know, being part of it. Um, Alan, I know, is you know he's he, he's dying for it to get out there because he, he's proud of it, what he did, his forward, and all of our chats for the book. So, and um, you know, he's he's somebody who wants to do Walter right. He, he's he was very happy to partake in this and to really you know 
dive into that forward and do the best you could with it. And I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, that's the best you can ask for when, when you're when you're working with anybody on these books. You just you, you want everybody to be as passionate about it as you are, and that's that's what I found. You know what I mean? And that's you can't ask for anything better because if you're if you're interviewing somebody and they have an attitude or they have an agenda, well, then it's never going to work. And sometimes those interviews get sidetracked or lost to, you know, the recycle bin. <laughs> well, is it, is it different talking to people behind the scenes and people who are in front of camera? You know what I find? Okay. Cinematographers and writers are the kind of people who will give you those kind of thematic discussions because one of, one of my favorite people that talk to are cinematographers because they cover both the technical side, the aesthetic thing, and thematic. Because really, they're telling a story through visuals, so they have a foot in the storytelling. So they're clued into the thematics of it, not just the technical end of what's going into the camera. Um, screenwriters, obviously, that's their world, is teams, subtext, stories. But you know, then you, you speak to the more technical end, end of things, You know, technicians who were there just to do a great job on the set. People like Craig Ratio was one of my favorite people to speak to. He gave me some fantastic stories. He was the property master on, on many of Walter's movies. And he, that guy should write a book. You know what I mean? It just His words were so literate in themselves. They were so vivid. I don't know how the man has such a memory. But speaking to him, now it was, you know, it was more on the technical side of things, the behind well, the scenes. When you stuff. say prop master, I think the guy who was making sure all the guns were authentic on every film. <laughs> that he did. <laughs> You know, so and with Walter, that is, I know from a fact from the book, is that that's a hugely important detail. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And you know, working on the driver, he's you know he's he's working with the LAPD guys on controlling the traffic lights. You know, this kind of thing. So he's he's one of those guys that has you know that that's his world, all the technical stuff. But you know, you think okay, he's a, he's a he's a technician, so you're, you wonder then, okay, how am I going to work him into the, the kind of the story elements? But again, he's a guy who's very much invested in Walter's storytelling. You know, so it was great to get these people. But I think anybody who works with Walter is invested in these stories because they're invested in Walter and they want to make the best damn movie they can. They're not just there clocking in and clocking out and doing their job. They're, they're heavily invested in the end result and making the best movie possible. But he and, inspires that. He inspires that kind of loyalty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To work with. You know, and it, I find myself drawn increasingly to these kinds of um, filmmakers, the guys who do work on the technical side. You know, I, I, I don't tend to go to actors first. You know, if I can get some actors in there, great. If not, I kind of like to start myself with the people who are, you know, behind the scenes, you know, writers, producers, editors, cinematographers, and people like that. They're all, they're all great. But I was, I was lucky on this one, as I am on most books, that people just gave me great material to work with, you know. So five books in, is it getting any easier, Wayne? No. <laughs> It's getting harder, just personally, I think, you know, I think I have to put the brakes on a bit. Well, you know. your, your next book is, you're escaping the world of movies for a short while, sort of, but uh, do you want to talk a little bit about, about your next book? Yeah, my next book, which is just finishing up now, actually, and coming out next year is called Hired Guns, Women of the Road and On Record in Alternative Music. So yeah, it is a music-based book. It's I'm stepping out of the, the film realm for a while and um yeah, I'm co-writing this book with a good friend of mine, Amanda Kramer, who is herself, I guess, a hired gun, woman of the road. She's been a professional musician who's worked with some pretty big bands down the years. You know, she's worked with the Eurythmics. She's a member of the Psychedelic Furs. She played with 10,000 Maniacs, the Golden Palominos, 
people like that. And I've known her for a very long time. And she, we're in the habit of talking to each other very often. And she, I was getting out of bed one morning and she texted me and she was like, hey, I have a cool idea for a book. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll call you on my coffee break and see what the crack is. So did that. And she explained to me, you know, she, she, had, these, she had these 10 women already picked out in her head. You know, specific, there were people like Gaylan Dorsey, who's worked with David Bowie and um, Sarah Lee from Gang of Four and the B-52s, you know, all these really great musicians who I all knew. I knew them from their work. But yeah, she's right. They're kind of unsung so heroes. It's, it's about women in rock. But is there a particular thing that's coming out of this that, that that's of interest? For me, it's just, again, it's, it's kind of writing about art and artists that really interest me. You know, these people have worked on albums that I love and I'm, you know, a big admirer so again, of their work. it's about the work. It's not about any, any agendas of oh God, no. so it's, it's certain, or anything like that. It's certainly not a sociopolitical tract of any sort. Sounds great. It's, it's, I, I, I love it already. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a really strong, it's, it's not a bit, strong characters and, and their business. Yeah, we're, we're celebrating these women who, you know, they work on huge albums and do big tours, but they're, they don't often get the credit. You know, they're not the ones on the cover or they're, they're kind of in the wings, but they're the ones, you know, providing the memorable bass lines or the, you know, the, the guitar lines that are just etched in your brain. But they're not the ones who you'll see getting all the, the kudos for it. So, um, yeah, we're shining light on all these great musicians and we spent the last year speaking to each of these women. And yeah, it's, it's turning out great. So we're just wrapping up that now and that's going to be the next book. And yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's it's a different kind of book for me because I'm working with somebody, you know, it's, I'm, I'm co-writing this with Amanda. So it's a different, it's a different beast. So I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. Fantastic. I, I look forward to that one as well. So we can say that this is end of October, beginning of November, we should be seeing your new book, uh, Walter Hill, The Cinema of a Hollywood Maverick. Um, I'm looking forward to that and uh, good luck with it man I hope it goes really well thanks for having me I'm sure we'll be talking again this time next year